Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Today, I talk with Liam Martin, the author of Running Remote, Master the Lessons from the World's Most Successful Remote Work Pioneers. And in this episode, we don't dig into the basics of remote work or try to convince you about the benefits of it. This is not a podcast for Fortune 500 managers. It's a podcast for bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped SaaS founders who want to build amazing companies. And if you're listening to this, you probably already know the value of remote work You've likely been doing it yourself for years, or at least if you have a company, have set it up that way because as bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped founders, that's just something we have to do, right? Oftentimes we can't afford an office or we can't afford to hire in our local cities because we don't have the money to do it. And so Liam and I really dig in to not the fundamentals of remote work, but we talk about asynchronous communication. We talk about how to do remote work better, some surprises that we saw during COVID. It's a good conversation. But before we dive in, I want to let you know we have 930 worldwide ratings, and I want to get to 1,000. This is in Apple Podcasts specifically. And most recently, DWill3x left a review that says, wish I had found this podcast earlier. It's so practical and relatable as a bootstrapped entrepreneur. I find it not only helpful tactically, but it's also great to feel part of a community of people going through the same things that you are. Join DWill3x and leave a review. And in fact, you don't even have to type all that. You can just go in, hit the five-star rating. I would love to put 70 more on the docket in Apple Podcasts for Startups for the Rest of Us and hit 1,000 ratings. There are so few shows with the reach that we have that are at 1,000 ratings, and I would love to get there. What else is incredible is these ratings are across 50 countries. I was surprised when I saw that. So thank you so much if you can deal with a crappy Apple interface and hit five stars. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Liam Martin. Liam Martin, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to be able to actually go deep on async for once, because I've done about 450 of these things, as I think uh, I've seen based off of my assistant telling me. And you're one of the first people that in those pre-questions that you had for me, I mean, they're exciting questions, so I'm ready to get into it. Yeah, we don't need to convince our audience that remote work is a thing. We don't need to convince them that it can be done, that it can be done successfully, because frankly, most of the audience is either already doing it or they want to be doing it, right? So that's why I wanted to dive into your book. It's called Running Remote. It came out today and it's available Amazon, Audible, and runningremotebook.com if folks want to check it out. Before we dive into that, you have a ton of experience running your own remote company, right? You've been running Time Doctor, timedoctor.com for 12 years with a co-founder. And it's a SaaS app, time tracking. And do you want to give folks an idea of, of where that business is at in terms of whatever metrics you're, you're willing to share? Sure. So we have team members in about 43 different countries. We're at a nice, reliable eight-figure run rate, growing pretty reliably. I think we should be floating around 25% growth this year, which is not bad for an eight-figure run rate. COVID accelerated time tracking industry in general. So that was also a really nice push back in 2020. I think we did like 195% growth and or change, uh, which was crazy. It was literally like, you know, those those big tubes where they put like $20 bills and it's like a hurricane that floats around and you just grab those $20 bills and try to stuff it down your bra. That was uh, the first couple months of COVID for us because we just saw such a huge increase of people that were saying, hey, we want to be able to apply to the remote technology stack. And looking back on that decision, actually, I made a lot of wrong moves 
in that moment. One of the companies that I respect so much that has absolutely crushed it is Loom because they very quickly went freemium and they did have a paid product. They recognized the opportunity. They said, we're going to do something completely free. Just use the app as much as you want. And really the goal at that point was attention for the remote technology stack, not necessarily monetization. And now they're doing very, very well as a company. Yeah. I didn't know they didn't have a free plan before COVID. They made a very, very quick pivot. And uh, there's a bunch of other companies that have done a really good job. of Mural is another one that did very well. They implemented a freemium plan very quickly because they realized they needed to be able to communicate that value as quickly as humanly possible to the companies that had no clue how to actually go remote. I mean, I call it emergency remote work. And it really was. I was getting phone calls. I got a phone call from a G20 country that said, hey, we have 540,000 employees. We took the remote yesterday. What should we do next? Like, what's the plan? And I said, I have no idea. We have like 200 people in our organization. Why don't you talk to somebody else? And they said, you're the first guy that picked up the phone. I mean, these companies just had no understanding of what to do. And I think they still don't, unfortunately. Well, and that's that's the thing with big orgs. I don't know that we'll get into it today because it's just not super relevant to the audience, but I definitely, I have seen remote companies. I personally managed my own companies into the low, let's say 10, 12 employees, and we were mostly remote and that worked fine. When I got into, I got acquired and, and the acquirer was 170 and they had an office, but they were remote part of the time. And I remember th- seeing things start to break down at the edges at that size. And I was trying to imagine what it'd be like to be Apple, you know, or some company with 10, 20,000 people and trying to still run remote and have things work. And I think that kicks off kind of my first question is Basecamp is often used, they were early remote, early proponents of, of being remote. But they're often an exception to a lot of the rules because they, just because they are, because they've been around for 25 years, because they were early, because it was not 25, what is it? It was like 18 years. They were early. They grow very slowly and organically. And frankly, I've heard that the employees are a bunch of introverts. And so then, then the argument against that is, well, that you can't build a 10, 20, 30,000 person remote company because can you find that many introverts, right? So what what is your take on that? Like, do you think that, extroverts can thrive long-term, even in a, let's say a 10-person or a 20-person company? Do you think extroverted people who need that face-to-face social interaction, do you think that they can thrive long-term in a remote company? So it's a bit of a complicated answer that I want to give you, unfortunately. I'm an ambivert myself. And when we look at the psychometric testing as it applies to remote work, introversion is one of the best success factors that leads to longer retention rates throughout an organization. Our our VP of product lives four blocks away from me. I meet him in person twice a year. He doesn't want to actually interact with me. And and that's totally fine. He would just happen to be the right person for the job. And he just happened to live four blocks away from me completely as a fluke. But when you look at the way that these organizations are set up, there's a really interesting moment, and you talked about 170 people, that's past the Dunbar number, which is about, the maximum of that is about 150 people. And the Dunbar number is basically just a sociological concept that you can only have 150 people that you know in a deep way. The test is, if you saw them at a restaurant, would you actually go down and sit down with them? Or would you just kind of like shyishly wave at them? And once you get past that number, the metrics really change where unfortunately, regardless of how much you want 
to have those intimate relationships with your team members, they effectively become numbers. And it really boils down to quantitative data as opposed to more qualitative data, which is good or bad. So to me, when you look at these extroverts that are having varying levels of difficulty as it applies to remote work, the answer that I have for them is work from home is not remote work. So work from home is I'm stuck in my office. There's a virus outside that may or may not kill me. I'm stuck here with my wife, my husband, my dog, my cat, my kids, and I can't get out of here. Remote work is I can be at my home office. I can be in a co-working space. I can even be in a corporate office one or two days a week if I really want to. I can be in a coffee shop. I can work on the beach. I highly suggest you don't work on the beach. However, I did it once just to say that I could do it, and it cost me $500 to get my keyboard fixed. I got some sand in there. But Outside of that, it's really allowing these extroverts to be able to get that energy out. And I think the biggest misunderstanding of that is that people that work in these organizations that are extroverts have to necessarily interact with coworkers to actually get that energy out. The vast majority of time, I go to a co-working space because I need to get that energy out, but I actually just interact with people that don't necessarily connect to my job or don't work in my organization. And that's how I get that energy out of me so I can continue to be productive inside of the organization. So it's just this, this miscorrelation. And I think there's just like all of these assumptions that have been built up on the 20th century on-premise model of work that we need to unfortunately undo for the future of remote work. Yeah, as an introvert myself, I always struggled with working in an office. And of course, that was a standard. I started working, I was an electrician for a few years, so I wasn't in an office. And then 20, 22 years ago, I guess, I started my career as a developer. It's, oh man, makes me feel old. But the office was super distracting. And I started working from home within a year or two after that because there was a dot-com crash and suddenly nobody wanted to pay for an office. And that was like my dream was to work remote. And it totally made me personally way more productive. Now, I didn't need to collaborate that much with people because I was often solo running a project where I had a little bit of collaboration, but for the most part, I was writing a lot of code. And then once every week or two, I would do an architecture session with somebody and we, could, we would just meet up. It was pre-Zoom and all that, right? So it wasn't like easy to do. But something that you talk about in terms of companies being able to track, you, you said quantitative versus qualitative, you talk about detailed metrics and crystal clear KPIs, which people listening to this know what KPIs are and know what metrics and all that stuff is. And, you know, if you're managing a customer support person, email response, right? So it's time per response and satisfaction are usually the two metrics you would look at. Usually, it's not always, but... And if you're looking at customer success person, you'd look at retention rates and churn. If you're looking at a salesperson, really easy to measure, right? Close rates, retention rates. Developers are the one that I've always found... I'm a developer, so I always found it easy and natural to manage developers, figure out who's good and who's not. But whenever I've had kind of a more an integrator or an MBA type ask me about each of these roles, I say numbers, numbers, numbers. And then when we get to developers, they say, how do you measure developers? And I always say, there's no numbers. Like you don't track who fixed the most bugs. You don't track who committed the most lines of code. Like this, these are both metrics, right? Well, in some ways, that's actually counterintuitive to productivity. Yes. So I'm curious if, because you run a, a software company yourself so, and you're remote. So how, how do you guys think about crystal clear metrics and KPIs with the dev teams in particular? This is going to be an unfortunate answer, but the best indicator that we've seen for success as an engineer is flow state focus or what my friend Cal Newport calls deep work. So really running remote, the book, is an infusion of deep work at an organizational scale. And deep work basically is having everything at your disposal to be able to solve a very difficult, hard problem. 
which is essentially what engineers are doing 24-7. The more that you can keep them in that state of deep work, the more they will be able to solve those difficult problems. So the worst thing you can do as an engineer is say, okay, I have everything in front of me. I'm going to get all the information that I need, and I'm going to read through the last four or five pages of code. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to start to write. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's meeting time. And we've all got to go into a meeting with 12 other people that don't want to be there. And you've got, you know, the one MBI guy at the front. I secretly call him Captain America, like the six foot five white guy that, you know, looks like Captain America. And he tells you what you're supposed to do next, right? That generally is the worst thing that you could possibly do to an engineer, they actually work much more like creative writers. And I've seen a lot of inspiration, at least personally for us inside of our organization, looking towards how creative writers write. And the first thing that they do is they find themselves a writing nook, like a writing nest or a hole that they just kind of like go into and they might disappear for three to four days and then emerge later. So this concept of a nine to five for an engineer doesn't really work. What you need to do is say, okay, you're really excited about solving this particular problem. You have everything at your disposal to be able to do it. Go ahead, let us know when it's done, and then we can talk about it. That's how we handle it. Again, it's not a perfect science. I think that this is only what we've really, this is an experiment for us. We've been doing it for about a year and a half, but there are a lot of other ways. There's a lot of other organizations that will give you much more quantitative metrics. Up until this point, I haven't necessarily found one that works. And it sounds like you haven't either. No. And I ran my companies very similar to what, what you're saying, where I viewed it as cra- like a craft, like a deep work craft, where you have to get in the mindset. So there were, frankly, for developers, there it was like one recurring meeting a week. That was only when we, that was when we were 20 engineers. When we only had, I mean, when we were less than eight, we had zero standing meetings, except for one lunch once a week that everybody looked forward to anyways, because we got to hang out. But I ran it the same way, right? Where it's like, I was a developer and I remember interruptions. I would, I would start work at nine and I would look I have a meeting at 10 and it meant that in the next hour I got very little actual coding done because well you're not even psychologically nope. ready to get in because you're thinking to yourself oh I can't why should I spend the hour preparing to actually think because you need all of that prep time before you can start to really think and and execute on something uh, we have something in the company called silent meetings which is basically we use Asana. You can use any other type of project management system you want, but we write down the issues for our meeting and then we will respond to those issues in the comments. And if we've come to a conclusion, we take the conclusion, we put it to the top of the ticket and we clear the ticket. And if we have less than three tickets before the meeting starts within 24 hours, we automatically cancel the meeting on all of our Google calendars. And that is just, I mean, sometimes people are honestly, you can see the day before they're trying to clear as many tickets as humanly possible to not get the meeting happen, to not have it happen. But it is a, I mean, that's even a reasoning right there. They don't want to sit in the meeting because they want to actually get more work done. And one of the interesting, the most interesting factoids that I found in my research for this book on asynchronous organizations is I found that the managerial level inside of asynchronous organizations is 50% thinner than their on-premise counterparts. So there are more people doing work in async orgs than there are people managing people solving problems inside of asynchronous orgs. And that is a massive strategic advantage when you're thinking about growing a company. And it's counterintuitive because you would imagine, well, if we're all sitting here in this office, don't we need less supervision, right? That's what the kind of pro 
being an office person would say, right? But you're saying it's the it's the opposite that when you're remote, well, and you're also assuming that work is something that you don't want to do, right? If you want to, like, if an engineer's happy place is solving these difficult problems because they truly believe in the company and they're aligned towards the vision of the organization. Our mission statement is we're trying to empower the world's transition towards remote work. That's what feeds into everything that we do as an organization. And we try to really reinforce that with every single team member inside of the company. And if they're not interested in doing that, then don't work here, go work somewhere else. So if you're not super excited about solving this problem, you're not aligned towards it, then yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of those things that I've got to have you in the office or I've got to make sure that you do your work. But if people want to do the work, it kind of just happens on its own. Do you know what one of the biggest competitive advantages is for a startup? It's not being in Silicon Valley, having access to capital. One of the biggest advantages is access to great talent and the ability to hire them fast. This week's sponsor is Lemon.io. Lemon.io gives you access to a pool of engineers from Europe and Latin America. It's a marketplace where they check and interview every candidate and then carefully match them with hand-picked projects. And it's incredible how quickly they can do it. Lemon.io can offer you a match with a perfect developer within 48 hours. Think about it. You can have a developer working on your project within two days. And due to their extensive pool of developers, inexperienced candidates don't qualify. These are all developers with a lot of experience working on startups and projects just like yours. You can find your perfect developer or development team with Lemon.io. Claim a special discount for Startups for the Rest of Us listeners. Visit Lemon.io slash startups to receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of working with your dev. That's Lemon.io slash startups. In your book, Running Remote, I was reading it yesterday and today, and the first section of it, first maybe 25%, is stating the case for remote work. And that, for me, I kind of skimmed that because, frankly, I already know, that I know, part, yeah. I know the case for remote work. <laughs> but, but there were a few interesting things that you, that you did include. One thing was about introverts, and then you have counterintuitive async bombs. And for folks who, who haven't read the book yet, obviously it just came out today, so probably most people, you talk a lot about remote work is async. Like it's a it's a whole different mindset, right? Than being in an office, you can't just move being in an office work to remote and expect it to work. So one of the counterintuitive async bombs that you mentioned is companies move faster when they collaborate less. I'm sure there are some folks hearing that statement who will bristle at the idea of it. So do you want to flesh that out? We specifically wrote that line that way to make people react <laughs> to that type of a statement. It's not that we don't collaborate, but we collaborate differently. So we collaborate asynchronously. And I mean, everyone kind of knows what async versus sync is, but the ability to be able to consume information when it is most advantageous to you. So let's go back to the engineering example. I really want to sit down and figure out a hard engineering problem. And maybe I'm working on it for six or seven hours. Now I'm exhausted. And now I can take that extra surplus time that I have, jump onto Asana or Trello or Jira and start to look at some of these other issues. Maybe we're thinking about coming up with a new feature as an example, uh, which we actually use in Basecamp. It's still the most efficient way to be able to discuss deep product issues over the long term, because then we can document that process, go back three years and say, why did we choose that feature? Oh, well, it was because of this. It was because Justin was the VP of product. Oh, well, he's an idiot. We let him go. Why are we still doing that? But yeah, the, the reality is that getting into the ability to consume that information when you choose 
to a on-premise org that wouldn't necessarily seem like collaboration, but that is collaboration to asynchronous organizations. And that's the real magic power because I don't have to necessarily be in a physical meeting room or on a Zoom call in order to be an active participant inside of that conversation. And that's really the key piece there is there's an assumption that if you're not physically there, if you're not physically synchronous at the time, then you're not participating. And I'm trying to break those down to be able to say you can participate, you can just participate asynchronously. And where does that end? I'm going to ask a question and then I'm going to talk about some of my experience. So like, you can't just have zero collaboration, right? There has to be some. And, and the examples I bring up is with my last SaaS app drip, we would do a lot of stuff async. We had a couple days a week in an office and that was great. And we'd hang out and water cooler and you know go to lunch and have everything. And then a ton of, of remote async, everybody's at home just cranking away. But there were times where we'd have a new feature that was kind of big, kind of hefty, kind of complex. And this is maybe, I would say it's once every other week is about when it would come up. Whereas like, it would be so helpful if the two or three of us could sit in front of a whiteboard and just hash this out, right? And and draw the diagram. What do you guys think about this? And we would sit there for like an hour. And it wasn't it wasn't even meetings. It was like, hey, everybody, you guys ready to do this? Yeah, let's jump in. And then we would just sit there. We're a very engineering driven org, right? And so we'd hash it out and we would get so much done in such a small amount of time and architect what would be a pretty complex feature. And I... I believe we were trying to do that async. It either wouldn't have been as good or it would have taken a lot longer. And so that, in my experience, is something where collaboration, I think, you know, in real-time synchronous collaboration is helpful. Now, in your experience or in your examples that you've seen, like how far can you take async and, and where does collaboration sometimes need to be synchronous? So it, it's interesting because the companies that I interviewed, I mean, some of them are fundamentalist asynchronous organizations, right? Like thou shalt not interact synchronously under any circumstances whatsoever. I don't take that stance. I am more on your side of the spectrum. So you are much more async than the vast, vast majority of companies you know that operate today. A lot of companies that sit down and look at your workflow would think that you're from Mars. And this is one of the other things that I discovered during the book, which was this is the first time that I ever really interacted with like corporate America because I've always been in the tech startup world and it just blew me away. Like, okay, we were sitting here for three hours to talk about whether or not we're going to get sued by this other person. Like, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. Why should I be in this call? That type of a thing, which was, which was so confusing to me. So what I would suggest that people do is effectively just what you did. Do as much preparation as humanly possible asynchronously. So can you actually discuss things and get to a point in which asynchronous communication breaks down. Generally, this floats around disagreements. And more importantly, this actually breaks down around the more emotional side of disagreements. Going back to the silent meetings example, the only tickets that stick up in our issues list, unfortunately, week after week, is Rob has got a problem with Liam because Rob thinks that Liam is encroaching in on his authority for this particular department and we need to be able to hash it out. So I talk a lot about how managers should really be reserving all of their energy, not for just communicating metrics from one person to the next, which asynchronous organizations do automatically because the platform is really the manager. Instead, focus on the EQ issues. Okay, well, why do you have a problem with Liam, Rob? How can we break that down? How, how can we discuss it? By the way, that sounded super weird because my business partner's named Rob. Uh, but, 
that's what I was going to point out to people. Not, not me, Rob. Yeah. Yeah. You you get what I mean. It's just sort of the, the, the concept is make sure that you're using your synchronous energy as efficiently as possible because asynchronous organizations, they have a sunk cost inside of synchronous work. So everyone takes 90 minutes, they drive into one particular place, and then it's a synchronous collaboration buffet. They can collaborate as much as as they want because they've already paid that cost. Asynchronous organizations or people that work remote pay that cost every single time that they meet because it doesn't cost you that much time to be able to flip on your Zoom call and do a collaboration on Miro or Mural or something like that. So we recognize that we can keep those times as short as humanly possible to really figure out what's the minimum effective dose that we need to be able to move forward and build that feature. So switching it up briefly, you know, one of the, I guess I touched on this a little earlier, talking about extroversion, but even introverts can feel isolated. I've worked from home for 20 years, give or take. There were a couple years in an office, blah, blah, blah. And there have been times where I felt isolated. Not many, I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm a strong eye on this and, and you get used to it over time. But you know, not talking about work from home, but talking about remote work where people can go to a coffee shop and they can sometimes meet up with coworkers at a, you know, every six months or every quarter at a retreat or something. Is isolation still a big deal? Like in the conversations you have and in your experience? And if it is, how do companies, how do, as a manager, as a founder, how can you combat this in your own team? So it is a big deal still, but I think that this was accelerated by the pandemic because a lot of people... And I love that the media is using the word work from home because they can very clearly divide that from remote work. What we had before the pandemic was remote work. What we had in March of 2020 was work from home, which is I must stay at home. I cannot interact with anyone else. And I think that I don't know your experience, Rob, but for me, we stayed in complete lockdown for eight months before we were able to be let out by our government. And that's psychologically scarring for any individual. I actually think that we're going to see a massive amount of damage, psychological or otherwise, that's going to present itself over the next five to 10 years from this experience. So you have to kind of divide that from just remote work in itself. But when you're talking about just trying to be able to get out and interact with people, I mean, you brought up some great points. Do a company retreat every year. I would do one major company retreat, and then I would do one departmental retreat per year. It's going to not necessarily cost you that much. It's definitely going to cost you less than an office. And people love these. Like in our organization, we we boil it down to three separate cities. And we usually try to choose a city that's a little bit more difficult to be able to get into that not many people. Before the pandemic, we were going to do um, Bangkok, I believe, which is a very, very difficult place to be able to get into. But people love it. We all align towards it. And more importantly, it's kind of our end of year so that we collect everything that we need to be able to finish off that one year and then look towards the future. And that's where a lot of those people can get that extroverted energy out of their systems. Departmental meetings, exactly the same thing. I would parse them out about six months in between each other. Interacting with co-working spaces, really important process for everybody. I mean, uh, they're not that expensive and people can use them now relatively easily. There's even ones that you kind of, uh, there's like coffee shops slash co-working spaces that I've used recently where actually uh, it costs a lot less. They charge you a little bit more for a coffee, but you get to sit in a nicer room, that type of a thing. And there's also just community groups that you can interact with, like find your tribe outside of the office environment. I think this, again, 20th century on-premise mindset, which is in North America, 
arranged marriages are taboo, but we have arranged friendships, which is the people that work inside of these offices. We're just automatically supposed to be their friends. And I think what we need to be able to look at is social networks drop off precipitously after university and they only bounce back up into your 60s. Why? Because that's when you retire and you're forced to be able to get out into the social circle again and interact with people. I think a lot of people have honestly just been lazy on their social game. Get out there, talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, build that that network that's not necessarily work-focused and you're going to be much happier. And you know the, the interesting thing, so I run a startup accelerator for Bootstrap SaaS and it's fully remote. And we were the we were the folks, we looked like geniuses when COVID happened because we were the first ever remote accelerator that we knew existed. And we launched in, I guess we launched in 2018, we raised a fund in 2019. So it was all pre-COVID. But it was, I would say it's a little bit of luck, but it's a little bit of that's just the way I've always run things, right? And there are no cities in the world that have so many Bootstrap SaaS companies that it makes sense to like, put an accelerator somewhere, right? They actually say, well, we're going to do it in Minnesota, Minneapolis, because I live here, right? There's no reason to do that. And so we said, well, we're worldwide anyways. Like when we do our microconf state of independent SaaS survey, it's like 50, 60, 70 different cities are, are mentioned versus when you go VC, it's like in the US, there's four cities at the top or 80 or 90% of the venture raised, you know, and that's, that's dissipating now. It used to be two cities. Anyway, so when we started this remote accelerator, a big thing we talked about is we need to get these folks together, right? The companies, the founders. And I was like, well, let's do a quarterly retreat every three months. And what we found with our first batch is they, we got to the third one and people are like, this is too often. It was actually, it was literally too often. And I had no idea that that would be the case. It is about this cadence of about every six months seems to feel right, at least to our founders. And, and we, we survey them every time. That has to date been kind of the sentiment is even though intuitively I'm an introvert and so I was maybe over-indexing and being like, well, people are going to want to get together a lot and really it should be every few months. But people were like, nah, I actually want to be heads down working on my company as much as I like my fellow batchmates, right? There's a very strong community and there's mastermind groups and there's all this stuff. It was too frequent, which I found pretty fascinating. And that does line up with what you said of like, ah, once or twice, probably twice a year is not, not too bad. Well, it's also cost-effective too. I think you have to look at the dollars and cents. One of the things that I haven't analyzed yet, and I really do think about these things from a quantitative perspective, is team retreats, When and, and research for the book, again, I sit down and do these types of nerdy things, looking towards where team retreats really started, it started with uh, Joel Gascoigne with Buffer. So that's really the core of where this trend started. And, and his blog was incredibly popular, very popular remote first organization. And that was the concept, which was, well, we all need to do company retreats every single year. There's yet to be a good data set that comes out of that saying, here are the quantitative outputs from that investment of half a million dollars, a million dollars, as an example, which is what it costs us to be able to run one of these events. We still do it because we actually see a little bit of a boost in EMPS. So that is one of the quantitative data points that we do pull out of it. What's EMPS for folks who don't know? So that's Employee Net Promoter Score, which effectively just measures engagement inside of how much would you refer your company to one of your friends, as an example. And that's really effective because there are so many other data points, just like NPS, so you can compare yourself, compare and contrast yourself. The other interesting statistic, when I've asked these companies, what's your EMPS? The average was 72 and the industry average is 36. So they're almost double what the average EMPS is and the two major question or the two major reasons why they gave for such having such a high NPS score. 
was uh, autonomy and then also radical transparency inside of the organization. A lot of asynchronous organizations give everyone as much information internally as they possibly can. There was one company that uh, stated, we want to give everyone as much informational advantage as the CEO so that everyone in the organization has the same information. And then when difficult decisions need to be made, the vast majority of the company actually agrees with that difficult situation saying, hey, if we're not cutting back our sales team by 25%, we know that they're not ROI positive. If we don't do this now, we could be in real serious trouble in six months, as an example. So these are difficult things to adjust to if you live inside of a synchronous kind of mindset with regards to work. But I'm not suggesting that everyone go completely asynchronous tomorrow. I think if people can just go a little bit more asynchronous next month, next quarter, next year, you're going to see massive dividends inside of your organization. You are Liam Remote on Twitter. Your book is runningremotebook.com if folks want to check it out. And of course, available on Amazon Audible and all the places that they would be looking out for it. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Liam for coming on the show. If you haven't checked out the MicroConf YouTube channel, I'm putting out a new video every week that is brand new content. It's like Rob's solo adventure every week where I'm digging into topics like 16 lessons I learned building a million dollar startup, seed funding for startups, top 10 mistakes I see startup founders making. It's fun stuff to record and it's getting incredible reception. So head to microconf.com slash YouTube if you want to check out the channel and subscribe. Again, we have one to two videos coming out every week, and I think you're really going to enjoy them if you like this podcast. I'm Rob Walling, signing off from episode 616. 